Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, I'm Dr. Maggie Perry. Uh, this is Tell Me What You're Proud Of. I'm here with Dr. Marty Seif, um, who has been one of my mentors for years. And so my favorite part of being a psychologist is using humor, compassion, and flexibility to help people build resilience while they are anxious. Um, Dr. Marty Seif was instrumental in the development and the shift away from um, anal. You know what? Actually, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you Great to be here. about. Uh, I don't know what I, I. I really don't know what I've been instrumental in in some way, but I know that during the course of my career, I saw a big shift in the focus of anxiety disorder treatment. When I started out, the primary form of treatment was analytic. Basically, people said, "There's something that's causing this problem. We have to figure out what causes it, and if we can figure out what causes it, then we can." that somehow will create elimination of it. And that was the, pri the primary form of treatment at that time. The problem with it is that it seemed to make a lot of sense. It didn't work very well. And people would comment about the fact that people who had significant anxiety disorders were often lifelong patients. There was one fellow who was the head of the Department of Psychiatry where I worked who said, well, very anxious patients are like annuities. They stay with us for their entire life. They're great patients and they pay, they help us pay for our retirement. Now that's a joke, but the fact is that pretty soon people started realizing that that was not the best way to treat people with anxiety disorders. And in the 70s and 80s, there was a whole bunch of things that went on that sort of changed that. There was the rise of what was now called cognitive behavior therapy. There are a number of people who kind of did that around the country. Some of them are very famous now. Some of them are not particularly famous, but they were innovative. And there's also a rise of something called the consumer movement, where people, the consumers, the old patients, were saying, wait a second, we're doing what we should be doing. We're paying our money. We're seeing the people. We're not getting better. So something has to be done that's better. And eventually, there was a rise of, of um, organizations and consumer movements. They all came together and started to change the way that we looked at anxiety disorders and how to treat them. And there's been a number of kind of stepwise kind of uh, improvements in treatment over the years went on. And we're now in the midst of another step, 
at this point. And my guess is another 10 or 15 years, there'll be yet another step in terms of understanding it because there's still a lot of people who need help but can't get help. So can you be more specific about what has changed? Well, it's a big question. It's a big, it's a big question. So number one, the whole approach has changed, you know, from an analytic approach to what's today called a cognitive behavioral approach, where essentially people are looking at not so much what causes these things. It's a whole different view of psychopathology, really, but a sense of it's irrelevant sort of initially what causes it. The idea is let's try to figure out how to uh, reduce anxiety. I guess that's the word we use. And initially anxiety was considered to be in the model of what's some now called cognitive behavioral therapy. Anxiety was considered to be a maladaptive response, a bad habit. And so people would use sort of learning theory principles to try to unlearn those responses. At some point when sort of what's called second wave cognitive behavioral therapy came along, People said, well, there's some cognitive component in thoughts. If you can change the thoughts, you can change the way that you feel. And that sort of took a lot of time. And now we're in the midst of what's a third wave or sometimes called act type of uh, perspective, which is more like it's not so much what you're feeling or, or what you're thinking. It's how you feel about what you feel or what you think about what you think in some way. It's, it's the way that you receive the emotion, the way you experience it in some way. And that might seem a little uh, elusive to people who are new to that concept. But my guess is that people who work with you and listen to you and deal with you, probably it's very familiar and just I'm kind of repeating the same thing or in a different way, hopefully. Yeah. So I think people are definitely very familiar with what you were just saying. So from your perspective, is all the other stuff wrong? So the question is, are the other things wrong? Um, I think a better term to use is that they are either poorly timed in, in the sense that um, people have a great desire to learn about themselves, and that's what analytic, more dynamic therapy tries to do. I think there's a place for it in therapy. It may not be the way to overcome a significant anxiety disorder, but there's a place for it at the right time. How come? Why isn't analyzing um, or using more psychoanalytic concepts the way to overcome a significant anxiety disorder? Well, first of all, there are smart people who would say that it is. You know, So I, I just want to tell you that I'm probably representing at this point a significant perspective, but there's probably people who are thoughtful people, high respect, who would say it is the best way to do it. From my perspective, there are times we're analyzing something actually inadvertently without getting into a lot of detail reinforces the aspect of the anxiety disorder. If you're talking about a person who has, for an example, an obsession, an obsessive thought that upsets them in some way, and you spend a lot of... The, 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 the prevailing view among that I hold, and I think a lot of people hold, and is probably consistent with what we know about neurology and neuropsychology at this time, is that these are just sort of junk thoughts that kind of pop up from time to time. And the way we deal with them has to do with how upset we get with them. And if we begin to analyze them and, figure, and talk about why they happened there and why they're going on at that time, then we're essentially 
engaging with them and giving them more due than they should. I tell people who have who get frightened by their thoughts, look, your imagination just beats you up, you know, and you have to learn how to be less beaten up by your imagination. One way is to somehow learn how to engage with it less and importantly to determine which thoughts are really important to to think about and which thoughts are important to to let pass by that's a hard yeah what to do when you're made very frightened by it because the whole other part of it is how anxious you make by it yeah so let's talk more about that i'm smiling because sally also used junk uh, that they're just junk thoughts, which completely makes sense. Well, the reason Sally and I use the same thoughts, Sally and I do a lot of writing and I copy a lot of the, uh, her terms, really. So I, whatever things that I say that Sally also says, basically I'm inadvertently copying from Sally. Okay, she's the smart one of our team. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I feel that way too. <laughs> You're not alone. Okay. okay, so back to differentiating between junk thoughts and important ones or managing, um, uh, managing the distress that you have when you have junk thoughts, sticky thoughts. Um, what can you tell us more about that? Well, I'll, I'm going to expand that question. Okay. Because I think that, um, this has to be that close to me in some way. Is it, is it, does it, it needs to be that close? Okay. It, no, no, it, no, I'll try to hold it. Okay. <laughs> Um, let me try to expand that. Um, I think if I think about what I do as a therapist and I, I am very fortunate. I love my job. I really am. I, I, I sometimes think I can't believe I get paid for this, but don't tell patients that because, you know, I yeah, don't want them to think. I feel that. the same way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things is I realize that people inadvertently, start to look at anxiety in a way that locks them up. And I know that from my personal experience. I tell, you know, I was very anxious when I was younger. And, um, and I pretty seriously tell people I turned my disability into, a, into an okay career. Um, so I know what it's like from, from personal experience. And what happens is that the process of therapy is somehow trying to get people to look at anxiety from a different perspective because they look at it from this way and they can't see any way to get around it. And they say, I say, come over here and take a look at it from this. And they say, oh, I see something that I can do. And I say, come over here and look at it from this perspective. And I say, oh, now I can see something in some way. So it gives them the opportunity to begin to get unlocked from the effects of anxiety, okay? So what that is, and the main component, which is which sounds so simple, but it's really, really complicated, because people generally, by the time they come and see someone like me who has a reputation as being an expert in the field of anxiety disorders, they essentially say, okay, I want techniques. I want some way of handling things in some way. And Or like coping skills? Coping skills. And, you know... And I don't say necessarily this to them because I think it's an honest question that they ask, but you know, you could read about coping skills in Red Book Magazine. You don't need to do a consultation for someone, you know, and pay money. We don't know what Red Book Magazine is. Oh, that's my age. Red Book Magazine doesn't exist anymore. 
Okay, um, you could do it in, tell me a magazine that still exists. <laughs> BuzzFeed. But, no, 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 no. Come on. I mean, one that used to have like a, a paper version. Is there, is there a um, um, Keen Vogue? Okay, is there a Teen Vogue? <laughs> yeah, Great. Sure. Okay, good. Whew. Okay, I don't know how that came up. But, you know, something that, okay, BuzzFeed. I'll do BuzzFeed, but you know what I mean. You could just read those things. The real important thing, getting back to the point, the thing that's most important, most subtle, and most difficult, I say to people, what we have to do is give you a massive attitude change. Very hard to do. And the attitude is that inadvertently, well, the attitude change is that you are fighting these feelings and all the rules that you're used to in dealing with things in life change when you're coping with anxiety. So one of the things that, you know, um, David Carbonell likes to say is that in general, in life, we're used to the fact that the more effort we put into something, the greater the chance of succeeding in some way. And that's a lot of the people who come to see us, they're working really hard to get rid of their anxiety. But if you kind of show them that there's a different perspective on it and change their attitude, they say, wait a second, actually, the rules are different with anxiety. Effort works backwards when you're dealing with anxiety. The harder you try to shake it, get rid of it, push away, banish it in some way, the less successful you're going to be. So that's a big attitude change that goes on. And really what we're doing is telling a person that the most efficient way, the most direct way to become less anxious, to be less constrained by whatever anxiety you have, is initially to take an attitude of acceptance, which is one of the paradoxes, one of the many paradoxes that deal, that grapple with anxiety. But the notion is, in some way, that what, what, when you feel this feeling, it will pass by most quickly. You will get used to it most quickly. Perhaps there's some evidence that suggests you will create new brain circuitry that allows you to inhibit the sense of intolerability of that feeling. If you allow it, stay with it, let it be by itself, watch it, float with it, any metaphor. It's a hard thing to do because in a sense, there's a, your brain is saying, part of your brain is saying this is a real emergency. Another part of your brain is saying, no, it's just bluffing me in some way. And you're trying to stay in that situation. It's a big leap of faith. Yeah. So how does it relate to the techniques again? Well, and actually I'm just thinking of people that um, hear this, read this, think about it as like, I just got to do it. So how does, um, when people think about, um, going towards their fears and exposure or intentional practice, um, how does just facing it relate to acceptance? Cause a lot of people face their feet, say, you know, um, well, try to let's say, let's say, um, I don't know exactly the logical thing, but let off the top of my head, I would say facing the fear is necessary, but not sufficient. Let's put it that way. It's a component of successful exposure. So let me just start by telling you something that I would see often, because for many years I ran a pretty intensive fear flying program. And there were some people who, um, 
it, and it, it it culminated with us taking a group flight in some way, which is which is quite a trip. <laughs> you don't know what it's like to have 30, 30 35 people afraid of flying on a on Sounds a regular great. scheduled flight. It was it was a trip. Okay, a lot of trips, by the way, uh, <laughs> in many senses. But that's all right. So, but the people there would always be certain people who somehow missed the whole point of what I was trying to make. You know, and you know there would be. 25 people in the group there was I didn't feel too bad if there were one or two who didn't who didn't miss it and they would say just before the flight I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna I'm just gonna white knuckle my way through it in some way invariably those are the people who either didn't fly or did poorest on the flight they you know because that's so facing their fear and they certainly faced the fear they were not they were very frightened so these were people so when I say Facing the fear is necessary but not sufficient for exposure to work. There are a number of criteria that need to be determined. Number one, um, the exposure has to be willing. Okay, someone can't tie you up and throw you someplace and say, uh, "This is the exposure that you want," because you're just going to fight it. Okay, and that's not a good attitude of acceptance to fight it. Number two, it has to be manageable. And what I mean by that is there has to be some sense that whatever you feel um, feels like you can somehow tolerate it. Because you want exposure to be therapeutic and not traumatic. Okay, If it's traumatic, then a person comes out of that exposure and says, you know what, I realize this really does suck. This is really the worst thing. Okay, I was really, I, I, I shouldn't have done it. I realized avoiding this for the last X years was really the right thing to do. So you're facing your fear in a way that is willing, manageable. You have to expose yourself to the correct triggers. That's a common problem that people have. So, for example, if a person is, has thoughts that they might drive off a bridge and they're driving over a bridge and they keep, on, they keep their mind focused on something else and they're just driving over a bridge, they're thinking that the trigger for them is the bridge when, in fact, it's not. The trigger is the thought. And if they essentially are trying to crowd out the thoughts, they're eliminating the, the thought exposure, okay, the exposure to the right trigger. One, two, three, four. Oh, and then the most complicated one of exposure, which is really, I think, the art of therapy is somehow you have to avoid avoidances. And that little phrase encompasses a lot of different things because most of us who have intense anxiety, my, you know, I can tell you from experience, we, are, we become expert at, at avoidances, okay? And most of often we don't know it. Other people, we know it rather, but other people don't know it. Our therapists don't know it, whatever. So we become really great avoidances. And avoidances essentially are obviate or change therapeutic exposure to something other than that. Okay. You got, did I do something? Did I push a button? No, okay. I, I just have thoughts. I just have thoughts about it. Yeah, okay. I have a thought. Yeah, yeah. So I call it a, or you might call it. I don't know where I got it, but betraying yourself. So when somebody, no, I never heard that term. Oh, okay. So when somebody Is that from you or Sally. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's not from me. Okay. Very little original from me. Seriously. Okay. okay. So betraying yourself is when you have a really subtle avoidance and you tell your therapist about it or, or you tell the group. Oh, it's like coming out. Yeah. Could be. Oh no. Yeah. I, betraying is a, is oh. a, is an interesting word. I wouldn't, I would consider it more like 
um, something much more positive. Or like you're How betraying your OCD. Yes. Okay, that's, that's what I meant. Better. That's yeah, what I meant. Betraying your OCD because you're really, it's the opposite of betraying yourself. You're celebrating yourself. You're basically, you, you know, they, I want to look, I'd like you to look at it as a victory. You know, every time you feel anxiety, it's a victory. It's an opportunity to practice in some way. And that's another thing that that's part of the attitude change that essentially the name of a game of anxiety is avoidance. People want to avoid. And what you're trying to do as a, as a patient, but certainly as a therapist, you're trying to inculcate this attitude is to say, no, what's really good is to feel anxiety. And you could be really kooky about it. You know, if, if you take the right attitude, I often tell patients, listen, a day without anxiety is like a day without sunshine, you know, <laughs> because every day gives you an opportunity to practice, you know, and I kind of believe that in some way, you know, and patients get into it. They'll come in and they'll say, well, you'll think this week was really good, <laughs> you know, but really I did not, but, <laughs> but you will really like right. it. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I like that a lot. So I think one of the subtle avoidances that, um, when we're trying to avoid avoidances is when people get caught in, um, whether it's a mental compulsion or a rumination, they get, they get caught in post-event processing after exposures. So they say, oh, you're talking about after exposures. No, tell me what you mean by that. So are you saying, so they do an exposure, they go home and they think about it? Yes. Well, in, in particular, if even so, for instance, maybe they're doing an exposure to thoughts they don't like, um, sometimes going towards a thought someone doesn't like is the exposure, but sometimes people feel drawn in to thinking about thoughts. Like once a thought is there, then they feel like they have to keep thinking about it. And so from my perspective, the exposure would actually be distraction. Um, or redirecting their attention while anxious. Um, so I think either. Well, I don't have a clear picture. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I mean, I was, I thought you meant something else. Um, but tell me, tell, I, I'm interested in that. So they, the exposure is over. Is that right? They've gone home. Are they doing the, the, the exposure is over? The session is over. They're with themselves and they start thinking about having thought about that thought or what? Yeah, I'm talking about two different things. So let me, the first one that I want to frame up is I think often happening with scrupulosity and harm OCD where the thought is, um, what if I've hurt someone? And once they start thinking about how they might've hurt someone or whether they're a bad person, um, staying with the script around that or staying with um, any form of exposure to it, whether that's external or internal, it feels like they have to do it because if they didn't do it, that would definitely mean that they're a bad person. That they have to stay with, well, um, you know, that might, my experience is that it's a little different. Usually What's far more common is that as people begin to expose themselves and feel less comfort with the less discomfort with thoughts like that, and they and the next thought is either a morph or what Sally is called a, a kind of a meta intrusion where a person says, 
what does it mean that I'm willing and able to have these thoughts without distressing? That proves the fact that I'm a terrible person. What kind of person could have thoughts like that and not feel horrified about it? So I would call that a, you know, as Sally has said, well, you know, um, a thought about a thought is still a thought, you know? So what happens is that that becomes the next intrusive thought because that's a, that's the, that's a common morphing. But that's not what you mean, is it? You mean something a little more subtle. No, I think that you actually spoke to the subtlety of oh, it. Okay. Okay. I think the person that thinks that they're needing to stay with their harm intrusion is staying with it with the intention of figuring out what it means. Okay. So, oh, okay. So, well, that would be engaging it in some way. And that's that would be something that you would ask a person to try to refrain from in some way. That would be sort of being bluffed by the anxious thought in a way, you know. But I thought you were talking about, I, when you mentioned it first, there were some other things. So, for example, social anxiety disorder is one of the anxieties that um, after an exposure, you know, everyone can relate to the notion of anticipatory anxiety where you, I mean, I think we talked about that, you know, once, um, which is, it always feels like it's a prediction of the future, but it's really a thought in the present that has more to do with memories of the past projected into the possibility of the future. It has far to do with our memories and is pretty consistently, pretty strongly a cognitive process. It's an indication, anticipatory anxiety is an indication of my past, not a prediction of my future. Much more. Yeah, I've heard that before. Someone said that to me. So, I think we came up yeah. with it together. No, I think you came up with it. I, I think you did. So, um, I think, but, but with social anxiety disorder, you know, people experience what's sometimes called, um, um, you know, uh, the word slips my mind where you go back and you, and you kind of, in a, it's not anticipate it's replay post event yeah, processing. Yeah. But it's, there's a cute word that, that is used to describe it where you go back and you say, how did I do? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't, it's uh so, but it's essentially a form. It's after the exposure, you go back and it's some sort of post play, you know, but it's, it's, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, but that's not the term. I'll probably think about the term later on, but you can put that in there. If you edit it in some way, you'll just, my words, and you'll say, <laughs> that. anyway, so that's one of the things that goes on. And then there's also, I was reading some of the articles by um, the woman who does all the work on, uh, the woman on the West Coast who does all the work on inhibitory learning. What's her name? Michelle Krask. Uh, Krasky. Yeah, and she talked about how to, uh, one of the ways to uh, essentially get the be most benefits out of exposure is that after exposure, not to create as many uh, um, uh, processes which interfere with the consolidation of the new circuitry in some way. So she says, afterwards, try not to get too distracted. Try to spend time with yourself. Try to be, try to keep your mind, you know, a lot of us have these very busy, noisy minds anyway. So try to keep the extraneous uh, extractions, distractions as low as possible. And that, and that allows the consolidation because according to Kraski's theory, there's actually new circuitry that's created, which inhibits the original response in some way. The original anxiety response. I think that's her model for 
what we what we call um, uh, extinction or unlearning or whatever term that's used. She uses inhibitory learning. Yeah. So tell me about the self criticism. So when that uh, particularly um, after an exposure, some part of the person is thinking like, "Oh, I'm proud. I went towards my fear." But then maybe I, my body is really sensitized. I'm having some replay. I'm maybe also getting critical, particularly if my exposure was incidental, not intentional, or if I had thoughts or feelings that I wasn't expecting. So you have any thoughts on, especially when after an exposure, someone is exceptionally self-critical and maybe is that's getting in the way of them uh, learning from the experience? Um. Look, everything that we do in, in, this, in, in this work has to be done from a word that's so overused, but I'm going to use it anyway, from a mindful perspective in some way. And what that means is that we need to always practice um, trying to pay attention to how we are acting in any given time. I mean, that's a task. And, you know, mindfulness is something that we're, the capacity that we're all born with, and if we practice it, we can get better with it in some way. But we never become perfectly mindful. We're not even the Buddhist monks who spend, you know, 100 hours a day, you know, practicing meditation. They, they fall off the wagon frequently, I understand. That's what I've been told. Um, that's what I've read, I should say. Um, so what it means is that when we try to do something from a kind of mindful, non-judgmental, objective dispassionate, disinterested, i.e. neutral perspective, um, that's the attitude that we aim for. And then when we do it and we find that we've done, we, we had some expectancies because we all have expectancies and we start beating ourselves up in some way, the best attitude I can take is, is sort of to paraphrase what Kabat-Zinn says. He says, you know, when, not if you begin to stray and beat yourself up in some way, you know, gently or lovingly, he might use that term, sort of bring yourself back to the present in a kind of more accepting attitude. Because what you don't want to do is say, shit, I'm really pissed off at myself. You know, I'm really upset that I sort of blew it in that way because that's the opposite of the attitude that you want to take. I think there are two concepts there. One of them is that I think part of it is that people are stuck because they are, are, they're told that effort works backwards. So on one hand, they understand that an effortful, effortful approach is not helpful. Most of them catch on with that pretty quickly. But the other hand, to not put effort into it in some way feels lazy. Okay, so I think that you can you can use two principles at that time. The way I, I like to think of it is that you can be disciplined and you can be gentle. And, and that's the approach that you want to take. You can say, okay, I'm disciplined. I didn't do that the way I would have liked to have done it. But I could also be, I can point that out and be clear about that. And I can also try to be gentle with myself. To the extent to which I'm able to do that, using this sort of, umbrella of a mindfulness approach. Can you be more specific about how, what being disciplined looks like? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it makes more sense to look at it from a different perspective, from, from the opposite perspective, 
that often people mistake not putting intense effort in something as something that involves laziness or sloppiness in some way. That, in a sense, um, for example, I can give you one example that comes to mind is that much of what we look at is urgency. When people feel urgency, I think is a manifestation of anxiety. And I tell patients all the time, you know, urgency is rare. If you feel urgency, especially if you feel it's, why am I feeling quite so urgent about this? Um, I'm anxious. You know, if you have crushing pain in your chest, if you cut your hand and you're spurting, if you're spurting red blood, urgent. You don't say, okay, that could wait till tomorrow. You know, <laughs> you know, you take care of it right away. You know when yeah. something is urgent. Yeah. Okay. But most of the time, the sense of urgency is, if you look at it, it doesn't quite make sense to yourself. That's an aspect of ang- of anxiety. So I think it takes a great deal of discipline to slow down and essentially let time pass when you're feeling that when everything in your body is saying emergency, emergency, everything in your psyche, I should say, and your body is saying emergency, emergency, take care of this right away. It takes a huge amount of discipline to say, no, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to intentionally not address those things. I think that's an example of discipline. I completely agree. And when people um, intellectually know because they've heard that that's what they're supposed to do and then they're having trouble regularly committing to it, um, how how are you gentle with about that? Um, I'm not known as the gentlest therapist, okay? <laughs> I should tell you. Um, I certainly have gentle parts of me, but I don't... We're trying to talk about <laughs> compassion and mindfulness here. <laughs> we are. Um, it, look. My feeling is, if I don't push them, I feel like I'm trying to push them in the right direction. If I don't push them in the right direction, who is? So I think that there are times that I am quite um, lenient with people. And I say, I think you did the right thing. And I think it makes sense for you to avoid and not to do that in some way. But, and I'm very willing. But I consider, I, I tell, I think that part of my role is if I think they're, they're, if, if they're oriented in the right direction, I should put my foot on their tush and push. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's. I think that's part of my role in some way, you know. And hopefully, get to the point where have them to the point where they trust me enough to say, "Okay, I'm going to do it," even though I really don't want to. I'm just going to trust you that, you know, I'm taking this leap of faith. It's a hard thing to do. I've been there, been there. You know, I used to be afraid of flying, and flying, overcoming my fear of flying was the hardest thing I have ever done in my whole life. It was a revolution in my life. It was a a reconceptualization of who I was and what I was capable of doing. Seriously. How did you get there? How did I get to uh, do it? Yeah. How, how did you shift the way that you were thinking about well, it? With a lot. How did it happen? Yeah. Well, I eventually started doing it and then I realized that I could do it, but it was, it was the, you know, it, it seemed like I, 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 you know, I, I, 
I joke with people, but it's really truth. I said, I grew up in New York. There were three things I knew would never, I'd never do in my life. I'd never play uh, center field for the Yankees. I'd never play center for the New York Knicks, for the New York Knicks. And I'd never fly in a plane. It seemed, it seemed written in stone in some way. Um, I still haven't played for the Knicks or the, or the Yankees. I think that's gone. But I do fly in a plane now. The other thing I should tell you is that um, when patients fly um, and they, you know, we fly in a group and then, and, they, and then afterwards we meet once again to kind of go over the, the experience, the most common phrase I hear from people is, Dr. Seif, when I was walking down the jet port, I felt like I was walking to my own funeral. So why do I say that? Because the one thing that we often ignore in this is that it takes a lot of courage to overcome an anxiety disorder. It takes a lot of courage. Courage is really an important thing. And I think we need to kind of credit every person who makes a step with being a courageous person. And um, it speaks to what courage is. It speaks to the fact that people are willing to um, encounter and experience such a great degree of anxiety. Why? Because they have a goal in mind that's very important to them in some way. You know, there's that sense of, it's, it's, it's used now this phrase, I am bigger than my feelings. I am bigger than my feelings. I can... I am larger than my feelings. I, I can, I'm willing to experience this particular form of pain in order to achieve uh, a goal that seems important to me in some way. And I'm willing to suffer. Now, I'm a long-distance cyclist. And when you start to climb a six-mile hill and you realize that for the next hour you're going to be working like hell, that's bigger than your feelings. I mean, you complain about it a lot more because you realize that that you're essentially willing to engage in a lot of pain. It may be crazy, you know, to get to the top of the hill. It does seem crazy to me, quite honestly, but that's a different, but it's a similar concept in some way that I'm bigger than these feelings at any given time. Yeah. I like to use the concept of soreness to compare it to uh, anxiety sensitivity. Do you like that analogy or do you want to talk more about it? Want to hear it? Soreness? Yeah. Well, I don't know what you mean by soreness, but for me, I would call it not soreness. I would call it excruciating pain. Okay. But, you know. Okay. So where, so, so where I take it is that if when you were five, you were told if you started to sweat, uh, if your muscles got tired, if you uh, were out of breath when you were trying to run, then there was something deeply wrong with you and you're never going to be able to play the game, then the moment you tried to join gym would be really both confusing and um, painful for you because you really want to win maybe, or you really want to play the game with the kids, but you have it in your mind that the normal thing that your body is doing as you try to go learn and grow is dangerous to you. So we all, I mean, we all learn though that soreness just means that we were working really hard. You get sore when you go after a long bike ride. Oh, you're talking about soreness afterwards. I thought you meant soreness during the experience in some way. Okay. Okay. No, I understand that. Okay. I would say that in my mind, look, I've been through it in some ways and, and people have varying degrees of experience, but in my mind, it, 
soreness doesn't quite do it, but I understand that. You know, if you believe that soreness was was dangerous, then then that's what does it. But that's that goes back to the old thing again. It's not so much what you feel; it's how you it's how you feel about what you feel. I mean, it sounds a little gobbledygook, but it really actually makes sense. Just like panic is not so much fear as fear of the fear. You know, and that's yeah. Yeah. So can you uh, going back to courage? People say uh, this doesn't feel courageous. Other people can do the same thing so easily. Why are, you, why are you trying to say that what I'm doing is courageous? What are your thoughts? Well, if someone can do something easy, there's nothing to do with courage. I mean, courage has to do with not the presence or absence of fear. Well, it has to do with the willingness to accept fear in order to achieve another goal. That's, that's the definition of courage. So if I can do something easily, it may be a great feat. It may be a sign of X, Y, and Z, but it certainly has nothing to do with courage. Courage means the willingness to tolerate fear in order to achieve uh, another goal. So I really like this. Uh, this podcast is all about um, what people are proud of and what therapists are proud of in, in people that overcome their anxiety. Can you say more about what you're proud of? In the, so I, I think you're, you're basically saying that you see courage in people. Can you tell me what else you see in people that recover well? Well, I've been doing this for a long time, okay? So part of it is, um, as a therapist, the process of meeting people, getting to know them, getting quite fond of some of them, and then if I do a really good job, and they do a really good job saying goodbye to them. So that's, I don't know if I'm proud of it, but it's part of the process of my job. And occasionally there are people who <clears throat> stick around for long enough so that I kind of almost feel like they're part of a family certain way. And, um, I like that. I'm proud of that in some way. Um, pride. I don't know if I should talk. I I'm proud of the work that I do, although I think that I don't do that much. I think that, you know, I just sort of help people look at something and people ask me, well, how important is your work? And I tell them really honestly, I think, well, you know, there are days that you'd much rather have a good plumber than a good therapist, you know? <laughs> True. No, I don't know what that means. You know what it means. Oh, so you, you don't live in a house. You, have, you, you live in an apartment where there's always a handyman. You figure out what it's like when, when you're alone in your house and your kitchen sink gets stopped or the toilet doesn't flush. You know, you really want a good plumber. Okay, so good plumbers can be really important in some way. I'm sorry if it seems like a random, <laughs> but it's true. But but what I do, but what I do, I think it's it's I just sort of fill in the parts that people don't have on themselves, and and I think I'm particularly fortunate because I'm pretty skilled at helping put those parts in in some way. The other thing we didn't mention about, which I think people watching this are noticing. You have to have a sense of humor. You got to be able to joke about this stuff because it's so preposterous in certain ways. It's so painful and preposterous. It's like we're just getting beaten up by our mind. What's that old saying? The mind is a uh, wonderful servant, but a poor master. So you got to, you have to figure out how to turn it into your servant and not let it be your master in some way because our, our mind isn't as smart as we think it is in some way. It can really take us in the wrong direction. And at times it's just goofy and stupid in some way. And it, for those people who, if I have patients the first or second time, 
I see them and they may be crying because they're painful, but if they could also laugh and make a joke about it, I know they're going to do pretty well, really. Yeah. So humor is a sign of a good prognosis. Yeah. Okay. Let me hear what you have to say about a realistic um, way of thinking about recovery. Given that you started with, um, you know, working in hospitals where people were either hospitalized or in treatment for their whole lives. Uh, we've come a long way in terms of anxiety theory and how we treat things. Well, no, no, people weren't. No, let me correct that. They were they were good analytic patients for their whole life. They had anxiety disorders and they would come to their their therapeutic meetings once or twice a week. Outpatient. This was, but it was said to me by an individual who was at that point head of the department of psychiatry at a hospital that I worked with. How. They were annuities, okay, so, but they were annuities in one's private practice. So go, I'm sorry, go ahead. So I, I just wanted to correct that. So in in light of that and in light of the chronic intermittent um, aspect of anxiety disorders, uh, I wonder actually if you could speak a little bit more to that and how that relates to a realistic philosophy of recovery. Well, I think really recovery depends on the sort of life that a person wants to lead. But I think there are a couple of general, in terms of um, the more you work at something, the more you, the more you can progress towards recovery. And I'll talk about what I mean by recovery in a minute, but I just want to make that point. So if a patient comes in and, I, and they say, how much time should I spend with this? And I said, well, suppose you want to become a gold medal Olympic swimmer. How much time do you think you should put into it? Okay. Or suppose you want to learn to be fluent in a foreign language in one year. How much time do you think you should put into it? And they say, well, I don't want to be the world's champion. I just want to become a good swimmer. That's a whole different thing. So everybody has their own goal of what, they, of what they're looking for. We're, we still haven't defined recovery, but we're knowing that there's some element between the amount of energy and time and effort that you put into it the right way and the, and the results that you get. There's some relationship. That's number one. Number two, it's hard to define recovery, but I can tell you the certain elements about it. Number one, lack of symptoms is not a sufficient definition of recovery, okay? Because anxiety disorders, as we said, tend to be chronic intermittent disorders, and they can go away on their own. Um, and we don't know why. There's a lot we don't know about them. Uh, but if they go away on their own, you may wake up one morning. It's sort of like you're in a storm. You wake up one day and the sun is out. It's really great. You figure, great, fabulous. But what's to say that the wind isn't going to shift and the storm's going to blow back again? So lack of symptoms in, in a situation like that is uh, a kind of a fortunate chance occurrence in a certain way, but it's not recovery. One is closer to rec So here's the point. When someone feels that a certain emotion, anxiety or some dysphoric or unpleasant feeling is experienced as intolerable, that's the basis of an anxiety disorder. If the feeling is intolerable, then I have to avoid it. And I find all these ways of avoiding it. So the more confidence I get that whatever feeling I get feels tolerable as opposed to intolerable, the closer I am to feeling to recovery. So if I believe 
that no matter what happens, I might get anxious, but I can handle it. And the closer, the more I feel I can, the, the more confident I feel I can handle it, the closer I get to feeling recovered. So it's not so much the absence of symptoms, it's the ability of feeling that symptoms are handleable, manageable, or really no big deal. Okay. Yeah. And can I just comment on that? Please. That that's not a one-time insight and that even like having a moment where you're exceptionally willing and then trying to grab it, um, I think is a trick that people try to grab onto that. So having lots and lots of moments where you feel exceptionally willing eventually becomes a, uh, a sense of I know what to do when I get to this space. Let's go even further than that. I hadn't really heard that before. It's a nice description. Anything that feels exceptional in any way is not recovery because recovery feels ordinary. Okay. That's my default way of doing things. And we switch. I mean, you know, um, we could not be symptomatic for a long time and something goes on and we begin to feel it again and we begin to learn it. I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a way of training our brain to deal with things. And, you know, there was a time about 30 years back where I was really virtually fluent in French. And now when I go to France, I can't understand the thing, you know. I'm still cursed with a very good French language, so people think I could speak, but I really can't. I can't understand anything. So what happens is that we learn things. We forget. We learn things and then we forget them in some way. So practice is also an important thing. And I think the 12-step model is a fine model to say, I always have to accept the possibility that I can somehow sort of start reacting in old ways in some way. And always have to allow that and always accept that possibility and, and be, uh, be aware of it. And, and the concept of expect, accept, and allow, which are some of the attitudinal shifts regarding sort of third wave uh, CBT, or act, whatever, is um, sort of illustrates that point. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.